0: Morning, everyone. Good to see you all here, and good day to those at at home as well. Next week, as we've heard um, from Rosie, we're, looking, we're getting into EV Grow, Pursuing Our Purpose series, which um, should be fantastic. Um, and so do grab your daily reading notes. Can I reiterate that? Do grab them because they start this week. So it'd be worth grabbing those. But today, um, focusing on Hebrews 2, our little Hebrews 1 and 2 series, particularly looking at um, God become man and the profound thing that is uh, and what that means for us in standing firm in the Christian life. So let's um, pray together. Father, we thank you for your just incredible love for us. Uh, Thank you that in your love you'd speak to us from your word. And please, Lord, this morning, open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see you, so that we would see your son in all your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, many, many years ago now, I was um, out surfing down at Manly, Ferry Bower. I used to live down that way. Um, I was out with a mate, a guy I used to surf with, um, a fair bit, younger guy. And he was a guy who I'd um, spent a lot of time with over the years, and a guy who I'd um, invested in and seen uh, come to faith in Jesus and spent a fair bit of time discipling and helping him grow in the faith. But over that last six months, eight months, a year, he'd seemed to cool to Christian things. Uh, seemed to cool to Jesus, seemed less and less committed to church, less and less keen to gather with Christians and serve, and more and more immersed in just the things of the world around. I felt like he was in real danger of drifting away. I felt like he was drifting away. And I was sitting there with him and I said, Jeff, it looks like you're not really committed to Jesus anymore. Whatever you do, don't let go of God. Now, I wish I'd said more, I wish I'd had better words, I wish I'd spoken to him earlier, I wish I'd... He responded, I could never let go of God. But he very quickly proceeded to do exactly that. In fact, I think he already had. Now, I pray that God would be gracious to him and bring him back to Jesus. But at the moment, he has drifted from Jesus. And sadly, I've seen this many, many times over my Christian life, and it's heartbreaking. Don't you find it heartbreaking in our ministry together? This is one of the most heartbreaking things. Together we share the great joys of seeing people come to faith in Christ, come from death to life. We see the great joys of people growing deep in the faith, engaging with God's word, coming to know him more richly, having their minds and their hearts and their lives transformed. But alongside that, we have the sorrow of seeing people drift away from Jesus. And the longer I'm a Christian, and the more Christians I know, the more people over the years I've seen drift away from following Jesus or drift into such a shallow Christian life that they may still call themselves a Christian, but it's really in name only. They have no concern for the things of Jesus or the things that are important to him. As we heard last week, aren't we in a more dangerous situation this year than we have been for quite some time, with the disruptions we have to regularly gathering together as God's people? There's a real danger of some of us drifting away if we're not careful. Now, we are being careful, aren't we? We're all being careful. We're being careful for each other, but we need to be careful. As we also heard last week, this book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians, that is, Jews who'd become Christians, but who attempted to start drifting away from Jesus and go back from being a Christian to being a Jew again because they were copying it so bad for being a Christian. Some pretty heavy and severe persecution had come their way. And so they're thinking, if we let go of Jesus and just go back to the old covenant, go back to being Jews and no longer be be Christians, we can get rid of this persecution. And the book of Hebrews is written expressly to warn Christians, do not drift away from Jesus. Whatever you do, do not let go of Jesus. If you let go of Jesus, you have nothing. If you let go of Jesus, you lose your salvation. If you let go of Jesus, there are terrible things that await you in your eternal future. Whatever you do, don't let go of Jesus. And the way the writer to the Hebrews does it is interesting. There are some very strong warnings that you'd expect, warnings urging against drifting away from Jesus and spelling out the terrible consequences for drifting away from Jesus. But they come after sections where the author has first spelled out how wonderful Jesus is how Jesus is superior to everything, how Jesus is better than everything, particularly better than things in the Old Covenant because that's what the Jewish Christians were tempted to go back to. Jesus is better, better than the angels who made the Old Covenant, better than the Old Covenant, better than Moses himself, better than the sacrifices, better than the priest. Jesus is better. Whatever you do, don't let go, don't drift from Jesus. What is it that's going to help us? What is it that's going to help us not drift away from Jesus? Well, at times what we need is strong warnings and the consequences spelled out, as the writer to the Hebrews does sometimes. But most fundamentally, we need the other thing that the writer to the Hebrews also does. Most fundamentally, the thing that will help us not to drift away from Jesus is to grasp ever more deeply how wonderful what God has done for us in Jesus. To grasp ever more deeply how wonderful what God has done for us in Jesus. Because if you grasp that you'll never want to drift away. You'll guard against drifting away. Now, in our passage this morning, God, through the author, paints a profound picture of God's dealings with humanity through his son, Jesus. And it is designed to blow your mind so that you could never consider drifting away from Jesus or drifting into a shallow Christian life. And the way the author of the Hebrews does this is by first giving us in verses 5 to 9, have a look with me there, in verses 5 to 9, the wide shot If it were a movie, this is the shot from the helicopter that gives you the view of the whole scene, the wide shot. Big story of humanity from start to end. Our destiny, our failure, God's solution. After the author's done that in verses 5 to 9, the passage then in verses 10 to 13 zooms in on, on one part of that story, the God's solution part of the story. It's like one camera angle zooming in, and particularly zooming in from God's perspective. It focuses on God's solution to humanity's problem from God's perspective. And then finally, in verses 14 to 18, the passage cuts to a different camera angle, zooms in on the same thing again, though. God's um, solution to humanity's problem, but this time God's solution to humanity's problem from our perspective. So we're going to follow this mini-movie sequence, if you like. Verses 5 to 9, the wide shot, the big story of humanity. Then verses 10 to 13, zoom in God's solution to humanity's problem from God's perspective. And then, different camera angle, verses 14 to 18, zoom in on God's solution to humanity's problem from our perspective. But as we follow this little sequence of this mini movie, again and again, I'm going to pause the tape. The tape shows you, hold on. I'm going to pause the, I'm going to pause the video. Because there are things of such profound, deep significance here that if we don't pause and stop and think more deeply, they might just pass us by. These are mind-blowing things. Mind-blowing things that if you truly grasp them, how could you ever consider drifting away from Jesus into a sh- or into a shallow Christian life? But you can miss them if we don't stop and pause and ponder together. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to watch together, wide shot, zoom one, zoom two, but at various points, pause. Ponder more deeply. And whether you've heard the truths here a hundred times or you've never heard them before, I hope these things are mind-blowing for you. <laughs> blow your mind and blow your mind in a way that stirs you so that everything within you is alive with conviction, how could I ever turn away from this God? How could I ever drift away from the Lord Jesus? So firstly, the wide shot, the big story of humanity. And the passage starts with our destiny as humans, our destiny. Verse 5. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. This is the destiny of humanity. The author quotes a wonderful psalm, Psalm 8, which Rob read for us. And I love how he says in verse 6, There's a place where someone has testified. makes me feel good where I can't remember where the passage is from in the Bible. You know, someone somewhere in the Bible said something like this. Um, No, no, I think the author to the Hebrews, the Bible for him is so much the word of God, he doesn't feel he needs to, to give us chapter and verse. There's a place where someone has testified. And the place is Psalm 8, and the author is King David. And in the context, which we had read before, David says, when I consider your heavens, God, The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for them? Now you can imagine David outside, away from the city, no lights around, complete and utter darkness, and he looks up to the the heavens, to the universe, and he sees the heavens, the moon and the stars, their vastness and their beauty spread out before him, and he thinks, what a human's God that you even think of us let alone care for us. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever been out in the the vastness of the ocean, looked around, there is water on every side, you cannot see land, so vast, so beautiful, and thought, what are human beings, God, that you even think of us, let alone care for us? Little specks on a vast and beautiful planet, which is a little speck in a vast and beautiful universe. What is mankind that you are mindful of us? The son of man that you care for us. What are humans that you even think of us, let alone care for us? That's what David does. He says, when I see the stars and all the glory around the spectacular universe, I think, what are human beings, God, that you even think of us, let alone care for us? But, verse 7 and 8, God has ordained that human beings are to rule the universe. Under God, as servants, but we are to rule the universe. That is our place in the created order. In power, he made us a little lower than the angels, but we are ordained to rule over everything, crowned with glory and honour, everything under our feet. We are the rulers. All created things are under mankind's feet, including the angels. We may be made a little lower than the angels, but they are merely ministering spirits sent to serve us. Chapter 1, verse 14. We are the ones destined to rule the universe. Not the angelic beings. Now press pause. Ponder this. The place of humans in the universe. In the day-to-day humdrum of life, it's very hard to keep thinking like this. This is incredible. We are not accidents. We're not random. We're not just animals. We're not just specks in a vast universe. The place that humanity has in this universe is profound. Our destiny is to be crowned with glory and honour with everything under our feet. What a human being's God that you even think of us, let alone care for us. And yet you have made us the masters of the universe, which brings such incredible dignity and worth and value to every human life. That's astounding. Brain explosion. Could I drift away from this God who has done this? Unpause. But we fail. Verse 8. Second half of verse 8. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Humanity was made to rule with all things subject to them. Humanity was made to be crowned with glory and honour. Yet at present, we do not see this. The angels are not subject to us. The created order is not subject to us. We are not ruling the universe as we were destined to. We are not in control of all things. In fact, our world is filled with mess and decay and war and disease and disaster, and genocide, and poverty, and ecological damage, and we do not have the power and authority to fix it. Everything is not subject to us. And it's because we have ruined it all by our sin, by our rebellion against God and his rule over us. We weren't content to be the rulers over everything under God. Instead, we sought to throw off God's rule so that we might rule without God, without regard to him, and live our lives how we wanted. And that rebellious impulse is strong and alive within every human being. And so our rule over creation, while still in place, is damaged and shattered and we do not have the authority that we were made for. And by our sin, more than that, we have become impure before God, unholy, and as a result stand under his just condemnation, which is death. This is humanity's big problem. We do not see everything under our feet because we blew it we did not fulfill our destiny. Instead, we became impure before God and subject to his judgment of death. And so if there is to be a solution, it must be a solution that again lifts humanity back up to its position of glory and honor and rule and a solution that makes us pure again in the sight of God and a solution where humans will no longer die under the judgment of God. And in verse 9, we hear of that solution. Verse 9. But... We do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. But we do see Jesus. And it says there, who, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, more accurately, was made a little lower than the angels, same as verse 7, was made like us, was incarnated became a man. God himself has joined us and become one with us and entered into our domain to fix our problem. So that, verse 9, he is now crowned with glory and honour. He has risen to humanity's true destiny. Glory and power and honour and rule is restored to humanity in Jesus. He is the true human being, the eternal God God the Son enters into our domain and becomes one of us. Fully God and fully man. He shows what Psalm 8 leads to. All things now under the feet of a human being. Humanity again lifted up to its position of glory and honour and rule. And the way that he does it, verse 9, is by suffering death. So that by the grace of God, that is by God's gracious plan, Jesus suffered death. So that he might taste death for everyone, for all people, without distinction. And taste it doesn't mean, yeah, you know, had a little nibble. Taste it means he, he gobbled down the full meal. He fully experienced death. He died to destroy death for all who will follow him and lifts us again up to our destined position of rule and glory. Jesus fulfills Psalm 8, the first human being to fulfill Psalm 8. And in doing that, He opens the way for all human beings who will trust and follow him to fulfill Psalm 8, and he does it by dying for us. Now, pause there. Ponder these things. God became a man. Now, we hear that often. It can wash over you. And The eternal God who has always existed, the forever being, who has created all things, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, became something that he was not before, a human. God the Son was not human, but when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, he became human. A change took place in God, not in his character, not in his nature, but before this point, the point of his incarnation, God the Son was not human and never had been. But from that point forward, that miracle, he would forevermore be a human being. He would be Jesus. But when most things become something else, they are not what they were before. When Jesus does the miracle of the water becoming wine, the water was not wine. Jesus does the profound miracle and the water became wine and was no longer water. When this miracle takes place, the miracle of the incarnation, when God the Son becomes a human, he he was not human. He becomes a human, but he remains God because everything is unique with God. That's the very big important difference. Though God the Son became human, he lost none of his godness. And so Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man at the same time come to save us. In our house, we own a pet, a couple of pets. But this pet is a, um, a little lizard, a dwarf bearded dragon, tiny little cute dragon lizard type thing. And you can throw in crickets, and he chases them around and gobbles them up, looking like a, like a dragon. Now, imagine this little dragon was getting sick. He wasn't well. We wanted to help him, but he was afraid of us. He'd always run away and we, we, we couldn't get him. I wish I could just communicate better to him. I wish he could know me more. I wish I could help him so that I could save him from being sick. Imagine if I could do a miracle and become a lizard, a bearded dragon, to be with my bearded dragon. I could remain human, fully human, but also be lizard, human lizard. And so, and, and, and so I could live with him. I could show what it was to be truly human, but in his form, his lizard form, so he could understand and communicate and learn and learn that I wanted to help him and I could ultimately help and save and care for him. Now, the illustration doesn't work. because you think about it, for me to become a lizard, a human to become a lizard, is a creature becoming another creature. It would be a profound, weird miracle. But (laughs) it's a creature becoming another creature. The the gap is so small, so tiny. For God to become a human being, the eternal creator of all things, the only self-existent being to become a human being, a creature, creator to creature, the gap is so vast, it's unimaginable. But it's different in another way too. For me to become a lizard... A human to a lizard, it's totally inconsistent, nothing common. But when God created humanity, he made us in his image. He made us in the very image of the divine God. So when God becomes a man, he, he becomes something that is consistent with himself, the perfect and true image of God amongst us, Jesus. Profound. Mind-blowing. What are human beings that you could think of us, let alone care for us, let alone become a human being and live amongst us and die to save us? Could I drift away from this, God? But ponder this as well. Jesus never stops being Jesus. For all eternity, God the Son will forevermore be Jesus. Fully God and fully man. It's not as though God the Son became Jesus and Jesus lived for a while as a man and God, but then at some point, his death or his resurrection or his ascension or his glorification, at some point, God left Jesus or Jesus left God. Or No, 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 no. In all the resurrection accounts, it's the physically raised Jesus who appears. In Philippians 2, it is... At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus rules the universe. Jesus will come again in glory. Jesus will take up his uncontested rule. In this passage in Hebrews 2, it is Jesus who is now crowned with glory and honour and ruling the universe. The very point here, the very thing that God was trying to achieve was a human being who lifts humanity back up to the position of rule to fulfil their destiny. Jesus, God and man, a human ruling the universe for all eternity. Mind-blowing. What are human beings that you would even think of as God? Let alone care for us. Let alone bind yourself to humanity in such a way for all eternity. Could I drift away from a God like this? From this Lord Jesus? Unpause. We fail to live as human beings up to our destiny. We fall from our position of rule and glory. But to restore it, to restore humanity to its rule, its destiny of rule is only possible through God becoming a man and by his death and resurrection to lift humanity up again to its position of rule in the universe. It must be a man who rules the universe. But only God can do what is necessary to lift us up to that position. Jesus, fully man and fully God, is the answer. That's the wide shot, the big story of humanity. But now the passage zooms in, it switches camera angle and it zooms in and it focuses in on what we've been talking about, the solution to the problem. But it particularly zooms in on the solution to our problem from God's perspective. More details about what God is concerned about here. And because it's concerned about what God is concerned about, Verse 10 begins by talking about how it was fitting that God do this. We might not think like this. But verse 10 and 11 are particularly concerned about that this was fitting. This was an appropriate action of God. See verse 10? In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and the one who are made, those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Fitting. Now, fitting here doesn't mean fitting in the sense that there's someone or something outside of God looking at God and judging whether God's actions are fitting and appropriate. You know how sometimes you might go somewhere and you haven't dressed very well, you're not acting very well, and people look at you and they say, that's not very appropriate, that's not very fitting. No, 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 no. It is God himself telling us his actions are appropriate to who he is. His actions are fitting. They fit with his character and with his being. Given who this God is, that is verse 10, the one for whom and through whom everything exists. Given God is the one who made it all and owns it all and for whom it all owes allegiance and exists for, The only one who has always been the eternal God, given that he is this God, since he is this God, it is fitting that this God should make Jesus perfect through what he suffered in order to make us holy and his children. This is the kind of God that God is. It is fitting for this God to take loving action. Action that means his son will come as a man and suffer to make us holy and part of God's family. The events of God coming to earth and becoming a man and dying for us are not God doing something that's totally unusual and abnormal to who God is. No, no, no. It is God being the God that he is. This is totally consistent with his very character and being. God becoming a man to die to make us his sons and daughters is the perfectly appropriate action of the one true God. God says it is fitting It fits perfectly with who he is. And to fill out further what this fitting action is, it says in verse 10 that Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. And the word pioneer there is a word that has two words within it, two parts to the word. And the two parts are champion and pioneer. He's the champion and pioneer of our salvation. He champions our salvation and he pioneers it. A champion is one who fights on your behalf and wins for you. Uh, does something that you could not do on your own. Uh, recently, I've taken up karate. Um, two of my kids are into karate, my younger kids, and uh, they've been doing it for years and years and years. And I've been watching them for a while and thought, oh, I'm going I'm to give it a shot. So I'm doing karate and now they're the experts and I'm the, the little learner. It's a pretty lovely thing, actually, to have your kids throw you around and knock you on the floor and basically you're the novice and they're the expert and they're teaching you and training you. And uh, good way to meet people, good way to spend time with your kids. Man, Shows you how unfit and inflexible you are. It's 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 fantastic. Um, imagine one day, and you have got to imagine this. This this is not for real. Imagine one day we're in the dojo, and uh, and and we're doing our training, and Cobra Kai style, another bunch of students from another dojo turn up, and they they say we want to challenge you, to see who has the best karate on the coast, and the way we're going to do is we're going to each pair up, throw lots and pair up, and uh, and fight each other it going to be no holds barred, it's, it's submission or knockout. I'm thinking, oh no, I'm just new to this, I'm a little beginner. They, they cast the, you know, the lots or whatever and, and suddenly I'm paired up with a second Dan black belt. Guy's been doing it 10, 12 years and I've been doing it a few months. I think, I'm dead, I'm dead, there's no way I can fight this fight. And then the sensei from my dojo, the, dojo, the master, says, I will fight for you. And so <laughs> <laughs> he's the champion. He he steps up, he fights on my behalf and he annihilates the the other guy. The champion. We need sometimes someone to fight on our behalf, to win the way for us. We needed Jesus as our champion. But he's also the pioneer, the one who goes first, but whom you follow afterwards. The American pioneer who goes in the wilderness to settle the land on their own, but with the knowledge that others will come and join them and settle alongside them. Jesus is both the champion and the pioneer of our salvation, the champion who defeats death on our behalf, who on the behalf of humanity wins our position of rule and glory that we were made for once again. And he pioneers the way so that we follow to become what he is. He is holy and so we can become holy like he is. He is part of God's family, and so we can follow to become part of God's family like He is. He is restored to full humanity, and so we can be restored to full humanity and ruling the universe like He is. He is our champion and our pioneer, and profoundly, the way that Jesus does this this, is through suffering. In fact, it says, Jesus was made perfect through what He suffered. And my immediate thought is, wasn't Jesus always perfect, even before He suffered? Didn't he always live a sinless life? That's the right instinct. But the word perfect there is used to describe consecrating a priest for an office, making someone holy, making someone perfect in the sense of setting them aside for a unique role dedicated to God. Before being a priest, the priest was not perfect in the sense that they hadn't yet been set aside for this wholly unique priestly role of dedication to God. But once the priest was consecrated for this office, they are now holy, now perfect, in the sense that they were set aside. This is the same for Jesus. Jesus was perfected for his priestly service by becoming what he was not, a human who suffered on behalf of humans. In eternity past, God the Son couldn't have suffered or died or borne the sins as a substitute. He had to become a human being to be set aside for this priestly duty of making us holy by becoming one of us and suffering for us. Through his incarnation, his humiliating and sufferings, he is set aside for this priestly task of verse 11. He is made holy to make us holy. That is, by coming as a human to suffer, he is consecrated for his priestly task. So as a priest, he can purify us from sin and make us holy. And... Verse 11, become part of his family. Verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He made us. We rejected and rebelled against him. So he took on flesh and became like us to save us and he's now not ashamed to call you his brother and sister. God thinks this is appropriate. This is the appropriate way for God to act, to make us his family like this. It's incredible. Only Jesus coming as a man could be the solution to our problem. To make us holy, set apart from God, Jesus had to be holy. Set apart as a human priest um, through his suffering as a human. And to make us his brothers and sisters, he had to be a human like us. So we could be his brother. He could be our brother. He had to be the champion who wins for us. He had to be the pioneer who goes ahead of us to a new way of life where we are a holy family set apart for God. He could only do this as a human. Jesus, fully God and fully man, is the only answer. The fitting answer, says God. Totally consistent with who God is. Now pause there. This is so profound, so mind-blowing. When God is most being God, he becomes a man and suffers and dies to make humans holy and part of his family. This is not the alien work of God. This is the fitting work of God. You find something similar in John 13. Do you remember the night before Jesus is going to be executed? He kneels down like a slave and washes his disciples' feet as a symbol of what he's about to do the next day. Like a slave, he is going to serve them the next day, serve them to the point of death to wash them fully clean. But just before, the author says this about Jesus' actions. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist and began to wash their feet like a slave. Knowing exactly who he was, that he had come from God, that he was returning to God, that the Father had put all power under his, um, in his grasp. Knowing that, he kneels down like a slave. And washes his disciples' feet, symbolising the way he would serve them to death the next day to wash them totally clean. When God is most being God, he is a servant. He serves to the point of death. Now this is mind-blowing. Could I drift away from this God? Unpause. Zoom in two. The passage in this final section, verses 14 to 18, zooms again in on the same thing, the solution to humanity's problem. But this time, the solution to humanity's problem from our perspective, from the perspective of human need. Why do we need Jesus to become a man? Well, two things, in order to do two things. Firstly, free us from death. Why did Jesus become a man? Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, since we're human, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Why did Jesus come as a man? To save us from death and the devil and our fear of death. Since we're human beings... Jesus also shared our humanity, also became a human being, so that by his death on our behalf as a human being, he might destroy him who holds the power over death, that is the devil. See, what is the devil's power over death? It's his power to accuse us. The devil stands before God, saying to God, God, you must be true to your character, you must be just, you must condemned to death these human beings for their sin, the accuser, which brings fear of death to us. We're so afraid of our society doesn't want to even talk about it. But in the death of Jesus, for us, our sin is paid for fully, finally. God no longer need condemn us because it has been condemned in his Son. And so the sentence of death no longer hangs over us or has any power over us. And so the devil can no longer accuse us. Because we're guiltless in God's sight, because Jesus has taken the guilt and the punishment associated. We're freed from slavery to death and the fear of death because of the death of a human in our place, a human for humans. But a human who is the God of infinite worth, who can pay for the sins of all people, as we heard last week. And verse 16 makes the point. It's not for angels that Jesus died. It's for humans. God did not send a saviour for fallen angels. Have you ever pondered that? Possibly not. Angels, though fallen, will be condemned to hell. A saviour has not arisen in God's plans for fallen angels. No, no. God's plan is to save humanity and lift them up again to rule the universe. Not angels or any other created being. Humanity holds such a special place in the plans and purposes of God. Secondly, finally... Jesus needed to come as a man to atone for our sins. So why did Jesus come as a man? Verse 17. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus becomes a man and becomes the merciful and faithful high priest. A high priest is a go-between between between God and people. God is so holy and people are so sinful that sinful people cannot come into the presence of the holy God without being destroyed. And so in the Old Testament, God set up a system which one piece was the high priest who stood between God and the people, a mediator, a go-between. He represented God to the people and the people to God. And he particularly did that through making sacrifice on behalf of the people, animal sacrifices to symbolically pay for the sin of the people. But a human high priest could never be the perfect mediator, never be the perfect go-between, because they were a human. They could not really represent God perfectly to the people. And because they're a human, they themselves were a sinner. And because all they could bring was animal sacrifices, which symbolic and needed to be repeated again and again, it never actually really dealt with sin. But now Jesus has come. Merciful and faithful high priest, God, who has become a human being. And so he is the perfect high priest who can perfectly represent God to people for he is God. And people to God for he is human. And as the merciful and faithful high priest, he is actually able to make atonement for sins. He is actually able to make a sacrifice, which means the anger of God is satisfied and does not pour upon us. Because this high priest makes the sacrifice of himself. He dies under the wrath of God to deal with sin once and for all and God's anger against sin once and for all so that we can be made holy in God's sight, clean, and God's children. Only Jesus can do this. God and man be the high priest we need making the sacrifices we need. Do you see how the solution matches the problem? We needed the God-man Jesus Now let's pause one last time and conclude with this. Think about God's plan, this plan. This is not plan B. This was God's plan before the creation of the world. It's not like God was surprised by the problem of human sin, like humans blew it and God was shocked and he had to come up with a plan B or a plan C. No, no. It's not like God had to scramble to come up with a solution. The plan and purpose of God before the creation of the world was this plan, was the Psalm 8 plan. God's plan was always that He would create humanity in His image, binding Himself with humanity in a deeply profound way. God's plan was always that He would create humans to rule under Him in a position of glory and honour and power, ruling the universe connecting humans to him in a profound way. God's plan was always that humans would fail, would fall from this position. But God's plan was always that God, the Son, would become a man and remain a man for all eternity, lifting humanity back up to that position of rule and honour and glory once more. Did you catch that? God created humans knowing that the way that he would save them was that God the Son would become a human and remain a human forever. God in his eternal decrees determined that this would be the fitting, appropriate thing to do. The eternal God, God the Son, become and remain a human being forever. God created humans knowing his personal eternal destiny would forevermore always be bound together with humans in the most personal and profound way. This is our God. What are human beings that you even think of us? Let alone care for us. Let alone do this for us. Could I ever drift away from this God? Could I ever drift away from the Lord Jesus? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, you are the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit and we praise you for who you are. I thank you so much, Father, for all you have done for us that you deem it fitting that in love for us your son would become and remain a human being forevermore while still fully God. Uh, thank you, Father, that he suffered, that he died under your judgment, that He has purified us from sin, that he's freed us from death, that He has made us your family, that he has lifted us up to our intended destiny to be rulers of the universe under you. Uh, Father, what an incredible thing that in love you would bind your personal eternal destiny to ours. Amen.